Well, speaking of Orphan Sunday, it's a good time to remind you that uh, this, the story that we're talking about is about an orphan. It's about a girl who lost mother and father and was adopted by an older cousin who became her protector, her, her, her guidance as, as he spoke into her life and directed her toward God and directed her toward wise decision making. It's the story of Esther that we kicked off last week. Um, it's, it's such a great reminder as we saw this orphan become queen. And ultimately, we'll see that she'll be in a position to save an entire race of people. And we'll get to that in just a little bit. But it's such a great reminder that when you engage in any type of orphan care or foster care, you never know what God's plan is for that child or that person. You never, Mordecai had no idea when he adopted his much younger cousin. He had no idea that she would be at the center of this incredibly critical moment in the nation of Israel. When we left off last week, God had silently and kind of from the shadows and from the background orchestrated a process by which Esther is now queen over Persia. On the advice of Mordecai, she's not revealed her nationality. She looked like any other Middle Eastern person and so Mordecai advised her, look, just don't go into that right now. Don't, don't talk about your background. Don't talk about your race or nationality. And so she's still listening, still obeying uh, what Mordecai has to say. We left off a little section at the end of chapter 2, and I want to grab that before we run to chapter 3. At the end of chapter 2, Mordecai... The Bible tells us he's sitting at the king's gate, and maybe that's because he's some type of official. He's somehow involved in making decisions, or, or maybe it's just because he wants to be close to the palace because that's where Esther is, and he wants to hear what's going on and get information back to her if he needs to do that. This is what happens while Mordecai is sitting at the gate. This is Esther chapter 2, verse 21. During the time... Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officials who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. All right, first thing, if you're going to have a guard, his name ought to be Bigthana, right? Like that, isn't that the perfect name for a guard? Like, I got Bigthana out there. If you need anything, he's going to take care of you. And, and Teresh, so apparently you got Bigthana and Little T. They're out there guarding the gate, and nobody's going to get past Bigthana. The problem is, they get angry at the king, and we aren't told why. Like, we're not given any information as to what stirred this anger up in them, but they, they were so angry, they put this conspiracy together to murder King Xerxes. And as they're talking about it, somehow, the Bible doesn't tell us how, but somehow Mordecai overhears it. Interesting, isn't it? As you read this story, God's never mentioned, but there's all this just happened to be at the right place at the right time going on. There's all of this providential. Some people would say chance. Wasn't that lucky? We would say, no, God's providential. God's sovereign. God puts his people at the right place at the right time and as we get to this part of the story, Mordecai's at the right place, at the right time, and he overhears this conspiracy that's going on and reports it back to Esther, who then reports it to the king, who looks into it, finds out it's true, 
And suffice it to say, things don't go well for Big Thon and Little T at that point. All right? They have kind of a tragic ending. But the whole scene ends with this sentence. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. It was all written down. It was all put in a history book. Now, today, presidents have press corps and they have photographers that go with them and sort of capture every moment, document every moment. It was kind of that way in the Old Testament. There were historians and their job was... You write down everything that happens and you record it. And then the king, if he wants to look back, he can know everything that happened. He can remember everything that happened. And I don't want to get ahead of us, but this is going to be a really important piece of information later on. Because there's going to be a time when the king's going to be looking back and he's going to rediscover this little event. Don't read ahead. Just come back next Sunday. We'll talk about it. He's going to remember this little event. But if I could draw an analogy between that very wicked king and our very good king, it's this. The king never forgets. The king never forgets. I mean, stuff that happened, even if it was a long time ago, God doesn't forget. He doesn't need a history book. He doesn't need an annal. He doesn't need it written down. He just doesn't forget. And sometimes in living out our faith, it can feel that way. It can feel as you're, as, you're, as you're living out your faith, as you're taking a stand, as you're trying to do the right thing, it can feel like nobody sees me, nobody knows me, nobody hears me, nobody understands what I'm going through. And this is what I can tell you, the king never forgets. When we open the page of chapter 3, we meet the fourth main character of the story. We've already met Three, four if you count the queen, but she didn't last very long. So we've met Xerxes, Mordecai, Esther. At the beginning of chapter 3, we meet a guy by the name of Haman. And when chapter 3 opens, Haman is being elevated above all the other officials in the kingdom. He's like being given a special place. Like you're at the highest place. You're the best. Everybody else is going to look up to you. You're under the king, but you're over everybody else. With that honor, it meant that when Haman would walk by, everybody else would bow down. All, even the officials. They would bow down at Haman's presence. The problem was that Mordecai refused to bow down. Mordecai's not Persian. He's not a Persian official. He's Jewish. And to Mordecai, to bow down would violate his convictions about his God. It would dishonor his relationship to his God. And so Haman would walk by. Everybody else would bow down except Mordecai. He's the only one. Now here's a reality about our faith. Here's the reality about living for God is that sometimes you're going to be the only one standing when everybody else is bowing. Sometimes you're going to be the only one that says no when everybody else is saying yes. Sometimes you're going to be the only one that says yes when everybody else is saying no. You're going to stand alone sometimes. That's that's where Mordecai finds himself. When we live out our faith, when we take stands for eternity, it's not always going to be applauded either. Like if you're a people pleaser, like if you need to have the approval of other people, living out your faith is going to be difficult sometimes. Because you're not going to get that 
all the time. And Mordecai finds it here. The other officials come to Mordecai and and they pretty much say, look, everybody's doing it. Like just, we know you don't mean it, but could you just go along? Could you just do what everybody else is doing just so there's not any controversy, so we don't have any problems? And Mordecai says, no. I can't just do what everybody else is doing. I can't just go along with the program because you don't see anything wrong with it. Because I see something wrong with it. So the officials, after talking with him for a while, eventually they go to, the, to Haman. And said, hey, I don't know if you've noticed, but like when you walk by, everybody's bowing except for one guy. He's standing. He's pretty obvious which one he is. That's Haman. And this infuriated Haman. So the next time, he's watching for Mordecai. And sure enough, Mordecai stands. Everybody else bows. He's angry. And then he finds out that Mordecai's Jewish. The Bible says this odd thing. It says that Haman now is no longer satisfied with just killing Mordecai. He wants to kill all the Jewish people, which seems a bit extreme, right? I mean, if you're just reading the story, and you think, okay, you don't like one guy, you're going to kill all of his people. That seems kind of crazy, except there's a connection. When we first meet Haman, he's introduced as an Agagite, which means nothing to us, right? We don't know who the Agagites are. The Agagites were the people group that Haman belonged to named for King Agag. Now, King Agag goes all the way back to 1 Samuel 15. In 1 Samuel 15, we read that the king of Israel, a guy by the name of Saul, the first king they ever had, gets into a battle with the Agagites, ends up killing their army, and eventually in 1 Samuel 15... King Agag, the leader of the Agagites, is killed. So there's been this racial tension. There's been this sort of tribal tension ever since 1 Samuel 15. And it's just been growing and growing and growing and eating away at people like Haman, who not only didn't like an individual Jewish person, hated all of the Jewish people and decided, I'm going to get rid of all of them. Now, here's the strange thing. 1 Samuel 15 is 560 years before the book of Esther. It wasn't like last week. You know, it wasn't like a month ago or like last year you did me wrong. 560 years, anger and bitterness and revenge has been growing in the hearts of people. Now, how does that take place? Right? For comparison, that would be like you being angry about what somebody did to your family in 1456. It's like, you don't know anything that happened in 1456, do you? Neither do I. This is how long this revenge has been going on. How How do you do that? How do you stay mad as a people for 560 years? You do it one person at a time. You do it one generation at a time. One person's angry... And they raise kids to be angry, who raise kids to be angry, who raise kids to be prejudiced, who raise other kids to be prejudiced, who raise other kids to be prejudiced. 560 years, the prejudice and the hatred and the bitterness has been passed from one generation to the next generation to the next generation. This is why the Bible speaks often 
about getting rid of bitterness in our heart. This is why the Bible speaks often about getting rid of anger in our heart. God is very aware of the potential of anger in the human heart. And the potential for anger and prejudice and hatred to be passed from this generation to that generation to that generation. We have an example in the Bible of it getting passed down for 560 years. So over and over the Bible says, get rid of that. Don't let that hang out in your heart. You'll have reasons to be angry at people, or at least you'll feel justified about it. You you could explain your prejudices. The Bible says, get rid of them. Stop defending them. Stop explaining them. The, The book of Hebrews says, get rid of the root of bitterness. Like all the way down to its core. Anger, revenge, hatred, bitterness, prejudice. Get it out of your heart. Because the very thing that sustains hatred and prejudice for 560 years is the very thing that gets rid of it. The way to get rid of it is one person at a time. One generation at a time. For a generation to finally say, hatred's not going to live on in my family anymore. Prejudice is not going to live on in my family anymore. Bitterness, revenge is not going to live on in my family anymore. We're we're a divided nation racially. We're a divided nation through prejudice and hatred and bitterness and anger and history. I got bad news for you. No president's going to do a lot to change that. No president's going to get that out of our country. What's going to get that out of our country is when I decide it can't be in my family. Prejudice and hatred and revenge, it can't be in my family. And you decide it can't be in your family. And from generation to generation... We stop passing on hatred and prejudice and bitterness, and we begin to pass on compassion and love and empathy from one generation to the next. For 560 years, this prejudice and hatred had been passed along, so much so that Haman devises a plan. He figures out how he's going to do it. I'm going to kill all of them. Interesting part of the story Haman is trying to decide which day to do it on. And he uses, it sounds weird to us, but it's kind of an ancient technique of divining the future, telling the future. Um, In the story of Esther, they use what's called a pur, P-U-R. And it's kind of like rolling dice. Uh, It's kind of like a game of chance. And so Haman goes through every year on the calendar. And whichever day the luckiest number came up on, Haman decided that's going to be the day. That's going to be the day that we're going to kill the whole Jewish nation. Then he goes to the king. This is chapter 3, verse 8. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. 
It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. Look, king, there's this group of people and they're not like us. Like their history is not like us. They don't believe what we believe. They have different customs. They talk differently. Their skin looks different. Everything about them is different from us. And they're holding you back. They're holding our whole nation back. We need to get rid of them and get them out of here. And then he, he kind of appeals to the fact that the king is setting up this huge war over the Greek world. We talked about it last week if you were here. Like he's getting ready to launch a war to take over the whole Greek world. And Haman steps in and says, these guys are going to hold us back. Like they're not paying their way. They're not doing their fair share. They don't contribute anything to our society. And here you are, you're getting ready to go to fight this big war. And these people are holding you back. You need to get rid of them. Not only that, Haman says, I'm going to put a whole lot of money in your treasury if you let me do this. The man will pay money to get even with this nation that he hates. Which at first sounds odd, but come on, if we're honest, we've all had people in our lives. We've all had moment in our li- moments in our lives when if we could be sure somebody was going to get what they deserve, we'd stroke a check. I mean, if you're telling me that they're going to get caught, how much you need? Like, what? Well, just hypothetically, what would that cost me? We've been there, right? I mean, we've been wronged. We've been hurt. We, there have been moments where we wanted to get even. This is why the Bible keeps saying you've got to get this out of your heart. Like, it will drive you to think crazy things. It will drive you to desire crazy things. You've got to get bitterness and hatred and prejudice toward people who hurt you or people who are different from you. Are people who don't come from where you come from or don't speak the language that you speak or don't have customs that you understand, get it out of your heart because it will drive you to very destructive places. So the king agrees. Yeah, we'll do that. That's fine. And then the Bible says the king and Haman have cocktails as the message is going out to everybody. This is uh, chapter 3, verse 15. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. The city of Susa. The the Jewish people and the Persians. This prejudice, this hatred had not affected everybody. And when the word starts to get out, the cities are like, what is going on? Like, what? What's our government doing? What's the king doing? What what are they thinking? And and as the message got to more and more cities, they all began to respond that way. This is crazy. I mean, I'm not going to do anything about it because then that will get me killed. But this is crazy. Why are they doing this? Eventually, the the, the word gets to Mordecai. And we're told that that Mordecai puts on sackcloth and ashes, which which was an ancient way of symbolizing grief sorrow, sometimes repentance. Like this is horrible. This is a horrible day. So I'm not going to wear clothes like I normally would wear. I'm not going to wear party clothes. I'm going to wear sackcloth and ashes because I'm grieving. 
Most of the time for the Jewish people, this also involved a calling out to God that he would save them, that he would rescue them. It doesn't say that in the Bible. That's probably what's going on, though. We're grieving, we're mourning. As the message, you can read in chapter 3, as the message got to different cities, they all responded the same way. Sackcloth, ashes, fasting, God help us. God, what is going on? We don't understand what's going on. And Esther finds out about this. Esther doesn't know why, but she finds out that Mordecai is sitting at the gate in sackcloth and ashes and being oblivious to what's going on, her response is to send him some new clothes. Hey, I went to Macy's and you look really good in this. It's in your color wheel. Why don't you put this on because I don't know what you're doing. And Mordecai sends a message back. And in the message, he tells her Haman's plan tells her about the edict, tell, tell, tells her about the money. Look, all of this is about to happen, and you need to go talk to the king. You need to tell the king that this is wrong, and you need to tell him who you are. And Esther responds and says, the, the problem is nobody can go to the king without an invitation. You can't just bust in on the king and say, hey, I want to talk to you. You have to be invited by the king. And if you're not invited, even if you're the queen, if you're not invited, you can be killed. And that's death penalty. You could die. And then we get this little piece of information. The king has not called Esther for 30 days to be in his presence. You do the math. You're the king. You haven't called for your wife in 30 days. Seems like the affection of the king toward Esther's beginning to weaken. So now Esther's in this place where this huge thing's about to happen to her people. She doesn't feel like she can just go in and talk to the king. So here's her response in chapter 4, verse 12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. He says, look, Esther, if you don't do something, people are going to die. You're going to die. You're not going to escape this. Your family's going to die. I'm going to die. God's going to ultimately take care of his family. God's not going to let his whole people be wiped out. But a lot of us are going to die if you don't do something. And then the greatest line of the story at the end of verse 12, chapter 4. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther. What if this is why this whole thing's worked out the way it did? What if this is why you were brought to the palace? What if this is why, out of all of the women who could have been picked, you were picked? What if this really is a divine plan? What if this isn't chance? What if we're not rolling dice here? Not if, what if this just isn't just lucky? What if this is a part of some bigger plan, and this is the whole reason, not just for you being queen, what if this is the whole reason you're alive? What if you're the plan? 
What if you're what God saw all along? What if you're the plan? You see, up until this moment, Esther could claim ignorance. She could say, well, I didn't know. I didn't know this was going on. I didn't do anything because I didn't know. But the truth is, responsibility comes when we know and we have the power to help. When we know and we could do something, now we're responsible for what we do with that. Responsible. And throughout our life, there are times when we all have to ask ourselves the question, am I the plan? Am I the plan? Am I here? Did I find out about this because I'm the plan? Because I'm supposed to do something about this. I'm not just supposed to read about it. I'm not just supposed to just share it on social media. I'm actually supposed to do something. What if I'm the plan? Now, none of us can be the plan for everything. I don't mean to suggest that. None of us can respond to every need that we know about. We live in a time when more than any other, we are exposed to need and tragedy and and hurt and issues day after day after day. Thanks to the internet and and, uh, 24-hour news cycle uh, and social media, there's need that we see all the time. I'm not suggesting that you're the plan for everything. I'm suggesting that we're each the plan for something, though. We each know about things, and we could do something, and therefore we're responsible for what we do next. It's not the same thing for me as it is for you. But you're the plan. You're here for something. Here's what I see about Esther. Esther was strategically placed. She was put in the right place at the right time. She had no idea that all of this was going to happen around her, but she's at the right place. You're at the right place for something. Where you work puts you at the right place for something. Your giftedness puts you at the right place for something. The family that you're in, the need that you've been exposed to, it puts you at the right place. You didn't get there by accident, it wasn't a roll of the dice. That you've heard about that need. You're strategically placed. Esther was providentially made aware. God, at just the right time, when something could be done, God brings this issue to her awareness. And God does that with us. At just the right time, when something could be done, when we could play a role, when we could be a part, what is that thing that keeps coming back to you? What is that need? What is that ministry? What is that opportunity? Maybe it's orphan care. Maybe it's foster care. Maybe it's adoption. Maybe it's missions. Maybe it's homelessness. Maybe it's sharing your faith with somebody in your office. You've been strategically placed somewhere. You've been providentially made aware of some things. The other thing about Esther is Esther was humbly available. Esther responds Hey, all of my friends are fasting. And we can assume praying because that accompanied fasting most of the time. All of, we're all fasting and praying for three days. She says to Mordecai, get as many people as you can. Help them to fast and pray for three days. Verse 16, when this is done, when the fast is done, when we've done that, I will go to the king even though it is against the law. And if I perish, 
I perish. I'll just make myself available. I'll just go. And I have no clue how it's going to work out. If I perish, I perish. I don't know if this is going to work or not. I don't even really know if I'm the answer. I don't even know if I'm the plan. I'm just going to be available. And we have to wrestle with that. Listen, if you're waiting to do something until you're sure it's going to work, you're going to wait a long, 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 long time. If you're waiting on something until you're sure it's going to be successful, you're probably never going to do anything. If you're waiting until you have all the answers, probably never going to do anything. Esther says, I don't know if it's going to work. If I perish, I perish. Now, let's be honest. None of us have to say, if I perish, I perish. Like, none of you are thinking about this huge thing you're getting ready to do and it may kill you. That's not where we are. What we need to pray is, God, I think I'm the plan. I'm going to take a step forward. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But, but I think I'm supposed to move. God, I think I'm the plan. And if it's difficult, it's difficult. If it's not always fun, it's not always fun. If I don't have this wonderful video story about how everything went perfectly at the end, then I don't have that. But I think I'm supposed to do something. If I have to shift my financial world around a little bit, then I have to shift my financial world around a little bit because you've put this on my heart and I think I'm the plan. And if it works, it works. We can't, we can't wait to be the plan. Esther doesn't wait. And by not waiting, by stepping into the moment, Esther finds out why she was created. You were put in this position for such a time as this is what you were made for. It's what you were made for. You didn't know it. You didn't know it when this whole process started. You didn't know it when you first found out this information. You were pushing back. You were saying, no, I don't want to do that. I don't think I'm the right one. You didn't know it. This is what you were made for. How tragic it would be to live our entire life and never experience that moment. And never experience a, this is what I was made for. Never experience a, for such a time as this, I get it now. I understand how all of those decisions led to this one. For such a time as this, I'm supposed to. The fasting, the, the praying, did not give any confidence of success. You notice that? Otherwise, she wouldn't have said, if I perish, I perish. She would have said, well, surely God won't let things go bad. But she didn't. The fasting, I don't think, was for the outcome. I think the prayer was, God, help me be brave. God, give me some courage. I don't know if it's going to work. I, I, don't know, I don't know if all the pieces are going to line up or not. I don't know the end. I just need courage to begin. I just need to be brave. And what is it in your life? What is it in your life that you're the plan for? 
You're, you've been put in that position for such a time as this. And I can't promise you how, what all the outcomes are going to be. Just be brave. Just be courage, courageous. Just say, I'm going to go and we'll see what happens. Let's pray. God, in all of our lives, there are events that we don't understand and we can't piece together. We don't know why we were there at that moment. But there are, there are providential times. There are sovereign times when you bring our life and our experiences and our ability and our availability and you, you let it intersect with a need, an opportunity, a tragedy. And that's our moment. That's our moment. We don't know how it's going to work out. But we need to be brave. So help us to live this week and the weeks that are to come. Looking for those moments looking for that thing that you're putting on our heart. It's, it may not be exactly like anybody else's heart. But what have you said to us? This is what I made you for. This is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to live. Be brave. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.